Hi, um, I'm Adrian. I'm second year studying engineering and Chinese, and I'm going to be doing our Bible reading for today. Um, it's from 1 Corinthians 4, and it's on the inside of your little handout. Um, this, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that is without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign, so that we might also reign with you. For it seems to me that God has, begun, has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we blessed. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus which agrees with, you, with what I teach everywhere in every church. For some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Thanks, Adrian. Um, you'll find an outline on the other side of the piece of paper from uh, where that passage was uh, printed for you on the handout. About 60 years ago, a little paperback was published called The Normal Christian Life. Uh, it was written by a Chinese person called Watchman Nee. And it was a big seller. And in fact, it's still being printed. You can uh, go to Amazon or your uh, nearest Christian bookshop 
and get a copy of a book called The Normal Christian Life. I think one of the reasons it sold so much was because of the brilliant title. (coughs) Excuse me. If you say the normal Christian life, it immediately plays on all our insecurities and uncertainties, doesn't it? Like, what is normal? Is my life normal or isn't it normal? Is my bland Christian life the normal Christian life or should it be more exciting than it is? Is there a better, uh, more meaningful Christian life than the one I feel like I'm living? Because most of us desperately want to be normal, don't we? Now, to be called abnormal by our friends sounds like we're a bit weird. And who wants to be weird? But what is normal? What is the normal Christian life? Because what we perceive as normal plays quite a significant role in setting our expectations of where life will go, what it will feel like, and even our decisions about what we do in life. So I think it's generally true that for us we think of the normal life as the lives of people around us. If you get into uni, you go to uni, you try and pass the exam so you get a degree and that gives you access to a job and a career where you can improve yourself over your time and you live a long, comfortable life into your 70s and 80s. But it's interesting, that might be a normal life in Perth, but if you lived in Mosul, that's not a normal life, is it? If you lived in Mogadishu in, uh, in Africa, that's not a normal Christian life at all. A no- sorry, a normal life at all. And what is a normal Christian life? If you're a Christian, I presume that's a a question you ask. Is it normal to have dreams and visions? Is it normal to hear voices in your head? If yes, then why don't I? If no, why do I? Am I going mad? If you're not yet a Christian, I presume this question is relevant for you as well. If you're still checking it out, trying to work out, is there anything to this Christian thing? Then what what would you expect if you became a Christian? Life to go on just the same or some radical changes in your life? Well, 1 Corinthians 4, that is the main question of this chapter. What is the normal Christian life? And two different, two rival versions of the normal Christian life are put in front of us and discussed. Now, just to get get us uh, into the zone, we're still thinking about the divisions in the church at Corinth, the personality cults around uh, leaders, people grouping one against another, following one, not another. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you're, you're sort of into this, you know what it's about. And Paul holds the followers responsible, not the leaders, but the followers. They're impressed by power and wisdom, by miracles and wise eloquence. And Paul's trying to correct them. No, God's power and wisdom is not in that. It's in the foolishness and the weakness of the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's God who gives the growth. Leaders are just servants that God uses. God is responsible for anything worthwhile that happens. And now in chapter 4, there's another sharp correction to do with the normal Christian life. And these two versions, these two rival versions. One is the Corinthian version. And you can see it in chapter 8. No, sorry, verse 8. Verse 8, he says, Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign. That word, you've already uh, have all you want, is the idea of being absolutely satiated. You know when you, you eat too much for lunch and you're so full you just want to sit there and relax and, and feel satisfied beyond belief. It's, it's that, that's what he's describing. That's what the Corinthians think about their lives. Already you've become rich, you've begun to reign, not literally as kings, but they're victors in life, they're winners. Or verse 10, you are so wise... 
You are strong. You are honoured. They're respected. They're looked up to as clever and successful people of influence and gravitas. But notice that the key word at the beginning of verse 8 is the word already. They think they've already arrived. They're already successful and popular and trendy. But do you hear Paul's tone of voice as he says this? Now, I know you can't get tone of voice on printed words, but did you hear it? Can you discern it? Verse 8, already you've all that you want, you become rich, you've begun to reign. How I wish you really had begun to reign, so that we also might reign with you. Paul doesn't actually believe they've begun to reign. It's just how they think about themselves. Sarcasm, irony, biting irony runs through this passage. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, you are so strong. You are honoured. And we're dishonoured. Do you hear the tone? Well, that's one version of the Christian life. Paul's version is very different. Verse 9. It seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. Have you ever seen those movies where they're of the Roman Empire and one of the generals processes into Rome after a great victory over the enemies of Rome. You seen, seen that in movies? Well, that's what Paul's referring to, because it, it happened often. A Roman general would be sent to, to put down the, the uprising, wherever it might be, in Turkey, even right across towards Russia. And if they won, which they normally did, Rome was a powerful force, the whole army led by their general would come back to Rome and process into Rome. And right at the front of the procession would be the general who led, in all his pomp and splendour, robed in gold and crests and everything else. And behind him, his, his generals and their armies and the marching bands playing that triumphant thing that they march into and the crowds are going wild and, and everybody's there and, and the, the hats are being thrown in the air. That sort of procession. But a little bit later, there comes the booty that they've won, all the riches from that region, that province. And then after that, right at the end of the procession, are the vanquished, beginning with their leaders, in chains, bedraggled, usually almost naked, for the crowds to throw rotten fruit at. And they're led down the procession into the Colosseum to become gladiator fodder. Paul says, that's us. The Corinthians, they think they're in the front of the procession. They're in the royal box. But Paul says, us apostles, no, we're the other end of the procession. We're right at the other end. In verse 10, he says, we're fools for Christ, we're weak, we're dishonoured. He picks up the language of chapters 1 to 3. He preaches Christ crucified, which is foolish and weak and ridiculed. See, his version of the Christian life is diametrically opposite to the Corinthian version of the normal Christian life. And what you see as the normal Christian life has a huge impact on everyday life. Verses 11 to 13, for Paul, to this very hour we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags, we're brutally treated, we're homeless, we work hard with our own hands. When we're cursed, we bless, when we're persecuted, we endure, when we're slandered, we answer kindly. We've become the scum of the earth, the garbage, the refuse of the world, right up to the present moment. He's the scum. In the opinion of most, the world would be better off without Paul. They couldn't be more different, could they, those two versions of the normal Christian life. So with asking, where, where do they come from? 
Where did the Corinthians get theirs? Where did Paul get his? Well, the Corinthians, it's not hard to see the logic, is it? After all, the king of the universe, the one who created everything, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he's chosen them to be not just his people, but his very own family. They're royalty. They're princes and princesses. And that's a God who loves us, who wants to bless us. And when God blesses people, it's material blessing that included in his blessing. Your, your wounds will be full. Your, your fields will produce all sorts of harvest. You'll be the head, not the tail. And if you want people to be attracted to Jesus and Christianity, then, well, they want to feel like kings and queens, don't they? They want to be princes. They want to be royalty. Well, let's offer them that. Let's show them that. People will come if we offer what they want, what they aspire to. Paul, where did he get his version from? Persecuted, cursed, slandered. Does ring any bells? Verse 9, led out like someone condemned to die. A spectacle, the butt of jokes and ridicule. Does that remind you of anybody? It's modelled straight on Jesus, isn't it? That's exactly what happened to Jesus. He wasn't acclaimed and admired. He didn't become a fashion label. He was despised and rejected. Discarded as the scum of the earth. And Paul urges the Corinthians to imitate him. Verse 14, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you, as my dear children, even if you have 10,000 guardians in Christ who might come and tutor you, you only have... You don't have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus, I was your father, your only father. I came and preached the gospel to you when you first became Christians. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. In what? Well, for this reason, I sent you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who's faithful in the Lord. He'll remind you of my way of life, my lifestyle, my normal Christian life, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church, which agrees with my gospel of Christ crucified, who was the offscouring the scum of the earth. That's the normal Christian life. That's the life Paul lived. It's the life he sees Jesus lived and died. It's the gospel he preaches of Christ crucified, not Calvin Klein. Now, admittedly, <clears throat> there's a degree of overstatement in making his point. And as an apostle, Paul probably took more than his fair share of the flack. But it's still perfectly clear which version of the normal Christian life Paul is advocating, isn't it? At least for the moment, till Christ returns. The Jesus we follow was not voted onto the town council. They didn't make This Is Your Life TV programs uh, out of him. He never became the citizen of the year. He was thrown on the rubbish dump of history. And we follow him. And that shapes our expectations of normal, the normal Christian life. That's worth asking, I think, stepping back for a minute and saying, well, is it chosen by Paul or is it just imposed by others? Because some of it does seem imposed by others. In verses 11 to 13, it's not that Paul deliberately goes hungry. People put food in front of him and he says, no, I'm not going to eat it. He doesn't walk around saying, come on, hit me, beat me. I like the pain. No, others impose it on him. It's not his choice. In verse 9, he talks as if God imposes it. God has put us apostles on display at the end of the process. And there's a, there's a lot of truth in that. It's mainly about how others perceive and treat Paul as he follows the Lord Jesus. He's not respected, but reviled. 
And yet there are strong elements of choice in it. See, the Corinthians are making choices to avoid that sort of life. They're downplaying Christ crucified, the message of the cross, because, well, frankly, it's a bit embarrassing. They project an image of success. We're, we're winners. Don't you want to be part of us? Because they want to be winners. And Paul warns them to stop. He urges them to imitate himself and his way of life. So he wants them and us to accept that being cursed and slandered and persecuted is normal. And only when we do accept that, when we embrace it, can we respond to it, not with anger and resentment, not with fear and trembling, but with blessing and kindness. In fact, if you step back a little bit from that central section and look at it in context, back in verses 1 to 7, we see that in this chapter, Paul is connecting our normal with the leaders that we follow. You see it in verse 6. I want you to learn the meaning of don't go beyond what is written. Then you won't be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. Last week we saw that what the Corinthians were doing were they were lining up, you know, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I, I'm a Piper person or I'm a Keller person or whoever else. It's actually all about them and their own ego, their own status. They're using leaders to scramble up the status totem to further their own agenda and their own desires. Because our choices of leader reflect our aspirations, what we want to be. So if I want to be rich and successful and honoured and respected, guess what sort of leader I'll follow, what sort of pastor I want. <clears throat> and so the Corinthians are cre- creating leaders that they want to be like. And it's the sort of thing that happens in politics all the time, doesn't it? Why do we vote for one person against another? Is it always because we're convinced they're more competent managers? Or is it because they embody our aspirations, what we would like to be. Now, my guess is that it's a bit of a mix, but aspirations play their part. If you look at the list of Australian Prime Ministers since Federation, so about 110 years now, for the first 60 years, almost every Prime Minister of Australia had a trade background. One was a train driver, one was a coal miner, one was a shopkeeper. It's sort of hard to imagine that today, isn't it? It's lawyers, it's merchant bankers. They're the sort of people we want as Prime Minister. Because that's the sort of person we aspire to be, isn't it? We don't aspire to be train drivers. So you wouldn't vote for a train driver. And so in Corinth, the personality cults, the celebrity pastors, it's not just the Corinthians admire someone and they join that faction, they become a groupie. As they follow the leader who embodies what they want to be who feeds their pride in themselves, who puffs them up. See, if you aspire to a life of excitement, that on-the-edge, risky sort of life, guess what sort of person you'll follow? Somebody like that, isn't it? If you aspire to a Christian life that's respected and popular, that's affirmed by all, what sort of leader would you follow? One who embodies that aspiration. And in, in Corinth, frankly, Paul is a bit embarrassing. He's weak. He's a nobody. But others, they're much more attractive. The tensions in Corinth is over who's best. Sociologists call it association status. You can understand that, can't you? You get status out of who you associate yourself with. 
And we are a status culture, aren't we? That's what matters. That's why we want to show off our cleverness. That's why we want to show off our wealth. That's why we want to show off our sporting prowess. Whatever it is that gives us status with other people. And here's one way. The leader you follow. And that's running rampant in Corinth. It's alive and well in our culture as well, I fear. Now, Paul's aim in this chapter is not to wrestle a bit of affirmation back in his direction. You know, follow me. No, he wants people to follow Christ. And in the first few verses, verses 1 to 7, he points out some of the errors the Corinthians are making as being overconfident judges and using the wrong criteria. Come with me to verse 3. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Even, I don't even judge myself. I don't sit there and work, think that my judgment of myself is entirely trustworthy and accurate. My conscience is clear. That doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, he says, judge nothing before the appointed time. That is, don't, don't think that you can judge your leaders accurately. Wait until the Lord comes. He'll bring to light what's hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. See what he's saying? We actually don't know that much about the leaders that we group around. Especially we don't know much about their motives. They may look terrific, hard-working, lots of growth happening, but maybe they're motivated by ego and self-promotion. Some leaders look very ordinary, but maybe they're motivated by genuine, humble love. So hold back. Hold off judging, playing one off against another. It's premature and it's arrogant. Because you're saying, I really see, I know the true picture. Secondly, he says, we're tempted to judge by the wrong criteria. Back in verse 1. This is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ, as those entrusted with the mysteries. Stewards, literally, of the mysteries God has revealed. He deliberately uses words that have got no status whatsoever. Imagine being at a party and somebody says, oh, what are you doing? And you say, oh, I'm a servant. Not much status in that, is there? (laughs) Zero. Zilch. None. Well, that's what Paul says. We're we're just servants. What's Ben? What's Tim? What's Heidi? What's Lewis? What's Dan? Just servants of Christ. And we're servants of of Christ, not of you. And stewards entrusted with the gospel of Jesus. You know what a steward is? We, We don't use the word much, but imagine... Imagine you went down the beach together and you got your brand new precious iPhone 8. Have they out yet? You got that, okay. And you want to go for a swim, so you say, Tim, can you look after my phone for me while I go for a swim? I say, sure, yeah, I'll look after it. And when you come back out of the water, you meet me and I say, uh, I wanted to show the crowds that I was looking after your phone. And I wanted to show them how brilliant and rugged your phone was. And here's the pieces. Would you be impressed? No, because I haven't done the job of a steward. I haven't looked after what you entrusted to me. And that's what matters most. It really doesn't matter much whether I've got the, the best suntan in the world. It really doesn't matter much whether I can run 100 metres on the, on the sand in 20 seconds. What matters is that I keep the trust. And Paul says that's how to assess leaders. Do they keep the trust? Do they hand on to you? What God has entrusted to them, the gospel of Christ crucified. Not changing it, not distorting it so it's more uh, palatable to people, just being faithful with it. Have you got leaders like that? Your church got leaders like that? 
praise God for them. They're a tremendous gift. Who cares whether they're hip or hairy? Who cares whether they're clever or just average? Who cares whether they're train drivers or lawyers? If they're faithful, they're worth their weight in gold. So you see what Paul's saying? Corinthians and us, we've got to get this right. How do we value leaders? What do we value in them? We've got to be sure it's not shaped by our aspirations to be liked, to be popular. My needs to be affirmed by those who counts. But instead look for faithful stewards of the gospel of Jesus who keep pointing us to Jesus. Okay, well this chapter is a warning. Paul's up front about that, isn't he, in verse 14? He says, I'm not writing to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. It's a warning to Corinth, it's a warning to us. Warnings are never comfortable, are they? <clears throat> if somebody warns you, it's because we're, we're going off track. But this is a warning clothed in a gentle spirit and love, not a whip to cause pain and shame. So let's take to heart these warnings. The two big ones are, firstly, the prosperity cult. Secondly, personality cults. It's the prosperity cult that is gripping the Corinthian church. For them, then, the normal Christian life is a life of prosperity and health and wealth, of success and influences, of being respected and honoured. That's what they aspire to. That's what they expect. If we have faith in God, God will give that to us. And around the world at the moment, that is an increasingly popular teaching. Spawned in the West, exported to Africa and Asia and South America, it's decimating Christianity in all those places and here in Australia as well. And I think it, 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 it's been so influential because it resonates with our desires and aspirations. I looked up one church website that had, as a basic tenet of their faith, total prosperity, spiritual prosperity, mental prosperity, physical prosperity, financial prosperity and social prosperity. That's what they believe in as the normal Christian life. And you can find some verses in the Bible to support such a view. By inference, a a verse that says something like, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, plans to bless you. Yes, they were written to Israel, but surely if God wanted to bless Israel like that, he wants the same for us, doesn't he? But here's a passage that directly addresses the issue. What is the normal Christian life? And it flatly contradicts those inferences. Now, a side note, it's not wrong to desire those things. I long for the day where there's no more disease. I long for the day when I understand everything brilliantly. I long for the day when, every, when life works as it should. The issue is timing. Remember the already in verse 8? It will happen one day when Christ returns, but not yet. So when Christ returns, we won't go hungry or thirsty. We won't be in rags. We won't be brutally treated. We won't be homeless. We won't have to work hard just to survive. We won't be cursed. We won't be persecuted. We won't be slandered. We'll be welcomed with open arms when Christ returns. But Jesus was straight with us, wasn't he? He said, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, pick up your cross, not your crown, your cross, and follow me. But heaps of our churches, even their names reflect that prosperity, that triumphant heresy. 
Victory Life International, Influences Church, Champions Church, Dream Life Church, Prosperity Church. They're all there. They're all over the world. Me? I think I prefer St. James. He was beheaded for his saviour. Or maybe St. Peter's. He was crucified upside down. The second warning is about personality cults, about elevating and following Christian leaders and pastors because they embody our aspirations. We want them to be impressive, clever, cool, funny, liked, popular, because I want to be like that. And we want them to deliver for me and my friends. If they're not hip, if they're not uh, loved by all, then, well, I'll try and find somebody else. And so inevitably we we play one off against another. I go to so-and-so's church. I listen to X uh, on the podcast. I follow Y. Is that you? If it is, you haven't got it yet, have you? We follow a crucified Messiah. We boast in a disgusting crucifixion. What do you think the normal Christian life is going to be like? I remember a 21st birthday party I was at and I was just chatting to one of the girls who was there and she found out I was a Christian. And she said, I used to be a Christian. I said, tell me your story. She said when she was 16, she went along to a youth group. She had a Christian friend at school, invited along to a youth group. And she heard that God loved her and had a wonderful plan for her life. And she said that really resonated with her because she had a wonderful plan for her life and she assumed that, that they coordinated. And so she became a Christian. But at 19, it hadn't worked out so well. She didn't have a boyfriend, which was one of her great dreams. Her parents had got divorced. That had been devastating. She'd failed some exams. Life seemed to be off track. So she gave up Jesus and was trying yoga. Her expectations of the normal Christian life had not been met. Why? Because they were the wrong expectations. And like the Corinthians, our expectations of the normal Christian life are often shaped more by our culture and situation than by Jesus. We think normal is what our non-Christian friends have, so it'll be the same for me. So if you're a Christian, if your expectation of the normal Christian life is that you'll get that nice degree on the wall for everybody to admire, leading to that secure, well-paid job so you can live in a nice house in the western suburbs or Rockingham if you prefer the beach, respected by your neighbours, loved by your friends, then it's well-nigh impossible to consider any options that might threaten that trajectory, isn't it? I suspect one of the reasons so few of us are seriously contemplating overseas mission work is because of that. Of course, if you move to Jordan or Turkey or the Congo or Vanuatu or even Midland or Armadale, that's not the life you'll have. (laughs) But what if my expectation was different? What if my expectation was more like Paul's? The scum of the earth. The end of the procession, like those led out to be slaughtered. What if that was my expectation? Well, I'd be very thankful that it's not like that at the moment for a start, wouldn't I? Slightly surprised, but very grateful. And I suspect it wouldn't be hard to decide to go and live somewhere where life will be closer to the normal Christian life. And maybe I'll be ready to speak up about Jesus to friends, even the LBGTQI people who might slander me for what I think and what I believe. Even if I get cursed and slandered. Maybe I'd be willing to do that. And that wouldn't be a bad thing, would it? Let's pray. Lord God, 
Please forgive us if we've misrepresented you and your son to ourselves or even to others. Help us to embrace this normal Christian life and not run away from it, knowing that our Lord and Saviour lived it and knowing that you call us to this in this world for now. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. About four minutes left. Any questions, comments you want to make? Yeah. Um, I guess, so the question is, how do you define prosperity? Um, I mean, prosperity is just an English word that means um, things going well. Um, so, uh, so I guess uh, when people talk about the prosperity gospel, uh, they're usually using it in a narrower way than that. That is, they're talking about that sort of thing I quoted from the website, spiritual, mental, physical, financial and social prosperity. That is, prosperity in certain areas of life. So, I, so I'm just I'm using it in the way they're using it. Is, is that okay? That seems fair? Okay. Yeah. I don't know which book it is, that's all right. I think it would be easy to take the verse out of context. So he's already said back in chapter 3, let each person be careful how they build, which implies that there's some self-awareness, there's some self-criticism about how you build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. So it's not encouraging us to be oblivious and say, I'm not, even, I'm not willing to assess what I'm doing, uh, whether it's faithful to Jesus, whether I'm being a faithful student or not. What he's saying is, um, uh, uh, even as we judge ourselves, we always need to judge with a certain amount of... Um, uh, what's the... I'm trying to think of the right word for it. Um, not totally conclusive, because... It's hard to even know your own motive sometimes, isn't it? And so to be able to give a definitive judgement that that action, that person, is totally right, is just not available to us. And that's what he's talking about. Um, He's not talking about no introspection. Uh, He's talking about taking that to the limit where with arrogant confidence I can say, "I I can work it out precisely. Only Jesus can do that. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, I'll hand back to Dan.